0: At the end of October, by a 4-3 vote, the state's top court paved the way for the expanded use of familial DNA searches by law enforcement for criminal cases in New York. The ruling was rooted in the idea that the state's Commission on Forensic Science, which we discussed in a recent episode of the Capitol Press Room, did not overstep its statutory authority when developing rules and regulations for the use of this DNA search." For more on the issue, we're joined by Beth Heroulis, an attorney with the New York Civil Liberties Union, which wrote a brief to the court expressing their privacy concerns with familial DNA searches by law enforcement. Welcome back to the show, Beth.
1: Hi, good to be here. Thank you.
0: It's our pleasure to have you again. So for starters, is it fair to say that while there may be some larger philosophical issues at play here, which we can get into, the question in this case and before the State Court of Appeals was one of authority and specifically whether a state agency had been empowered by a 30-year-old law to write rules and regulations for familial DNA searches?
1: This case was very narrowly crafted. It did not raise any of the Fourth Amendment issues around familial DNA searches. It was a separation of powers case, whether or not the New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services had been delegated authority back in the 90s by the new york state legislature to permit a familial search dna technique that did not even exist in the 90s obviously the court of appeals in a 4-3 decision determined that there had not been a violation of separations of power we obviously disagree with that decision we think that there was no way that the state legislature would have decided in the 90s to completely and fully delegate to an executive agency significant policy determinations around DNA search techniques that didn't exist at the time. They were very concerned, the legislature in the 90s, with balancing privacy rights against criminal justice determinations. With the Court of Appeals decision in Stevens determining that there was no violation of separation of powers doctrine, The court has really opened up an enormous kettle of fish here in terms of executive agencies making significant policy decisions and putting the thumb on the scale of criminal justice concerns without consideration of privacy issues.
0: Well, I want to go back to something you said about the fact that the technology and the way it's utilized now didn't exist and wasn't maybe on the minds of state lawmakers 30 years ago. But when we think about some of the big, say, U.S. Supreme Court cases, whether it's about abortion or maybe other rights to privacy and, like, digital spying, it it seems like the conversation comes down to the framers' uh, intent, you know, guys from the 1700s, so... Isn't there precedent to say that we have living laws and living constitutions that are interpreted and administered by whether it's state or federal officials years down the line?
1: Well, I mean, we do and we don't, right? I mean, we have a construct that our federal Supreme Court is wed to, at least in the context of gun laws, right, as to what was the original framers' intent. And it does not permit for you know, the passage of time and the evolution of society. I think what we do have here in the Stevens case is very clear articulation. And we raised these legislative statements that were made by the New York State Legislature in the 90s that were very, very concerned about the newness of the technology, the fact that the technology had the potential, obviously, to evolve, both for the good and for the bad. And they were very concerned about ensuring that Innocent people's right to privacy, and that's almost a direct quote from the legislative record at the time, had to be considered with respect to the creation of this data bank and the storage and routine testing of convicted felon DNA samples. So I think the legislative history here actually set up guardrails that were really disregarded in the court of appeals determination here it's hard to read the case and without shaking your head and saying it was very very clear that the legislature was guarding its purview to make significant social policy determinations and to weigh the interests and the court of appeals doesn't recognize that
0: Well, you made the argument that they were concerned about, say, routine testing, and from reading the regulations that were adopted in 2017, it seems like they set up a test with a pretty significant barrier to pass before actually doing these familial DNA searches, and that includes having a significant public safety threat, and investigators generally have to exhaust all reasonable investigative efforts, or they need to face exigent circumstances, and how I guess we've seen that play out is some of the state's attorneys saying that less than 10 familial searches are done each year. So why wouldn't you look at that and say, yeah, there seems to be a, a pretty narrow construct uh, of regulations that could be in keeping with uh, what lawmakers adopted 30 years ago?
1: Well, you know, just to the point that look how well the statute or the regulatory regime works. We haven't mm-hmm. done that many tests. Remember, the first department appellate division held that familial search was unlawful back in 2018. So there haven't actually been a lot of applications made for familial search permissions. But the argument that was raised, and it was raised then by DCJS, that they were setting up sufficient guardrails in the regulations. Um, the response at the time, and continues to be, there aren't sort of significant guardrails with respect to independent consideration of The allegations that law enforcement will make for purposes of getting permission to run a familial search. So, you know, it's like the issuance of a warrant. It's happening in a closed room. You know, there's no sort of testing of it, it's an ex parte application that's being made. So there isn't the opportunity for objection, for argument. What are the exigent circumstances? What are the law enforcement? techniques and leads that you've run down and you can't find anything further but for this degraded sample that you need to test to see if it might potentially match up against a convicted felon such that you open up the door to potential related males to that convicted felon who might have some information. I mean, it's a very attenuated process that rests on we think two sort of flawed pillars. One of them is assuming that a family member of a convicted felon might have a propensity to engage in criminal behavior or to associate with people who may have engaged in criminal behavior. And secondly, and more from the sort of technical perspective, what constitutes a probability that a degraded DNA sample at a crime scene actually quote unquote matches? Sufficiently that law enforcement should be allowed to go down that road of interrogation, evaluation, location of relatives who themselves are likely completely innocent, but who will suffer the collateral consequences of having this interaction with law enforcement. So, you know, when you think about the fact that the convicted felon DNA databank is comprised largely of men of color their DNA samples, um, you've already skewed the, quote unquote, innocent population of relatives um, to skew in favor of identifying exclusively males of color who are related to people who are in the convicted felon DNA data bank. So, you know, these are pretty weighty determinations. I think that, you know, DCGS tried to sort of set up as many Uh, quote-unquote guardrails at the time in response to all of the criticisms and the debate that was had at the hearings before DCJS when they were considering this regulatory regime back in 2016 and 17. These are all determinations that we all argued really were more appropriately lodged before and considered and decided by the legislature. I don't think the regulatory regime is necessarily as protective of individual privacy while accomplishing the law enforcement outcomes that they are looking for.
0: Well, turning to the future, in the aftermath of this ruling, we got legislation that would ban this technique, underscoring what legislative sponsor argues is kind of a critical juncture in the fight against discrimination and the protection of civil liberties. Is that the direction you would like to see the legislature go, a broad prohibition? Or do you think a thoughtful bill could be written that would potentially allow for the use of familial DNA searches by law enforcement?
1: We have always at the NYCLU um, been opposed to and would support a ban on familial DNA searching. You know, I think that what we would be looking for and, you know, in this country, right, if you look at the FBI, the FBI does not permit familial search DNA samples to be stored in the federal DNA database. It's not permitted to be stored in state databases. It just, it can't be used. It can't be tested. What we have in New York are a number of local DNA databases, including the database that the NYPD accesses most frequently, which is maintained by the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner. I think what the legislature should be doing is considering in 2023-24 the DNA regime that was set up back in the 90s. There have been advances in both genetic testing. There are lots of implications for genetic privacy. There are implications for convicted felon DNA data banking, the science has gone beyond, you know, it's not just junk DNA that's out there and in these databases. So I think what we've seen across the country is a patchwork with respect to familial DNA. We've got outright bans in Maryland and the District of Columbia, which I believe is the basis on which existing bill that has been introduced It doesn't speak to um, the ocme database the local databases which could in fact be repositories for familial search profiles the legislature really should be shining a light on the current state of dna technology obviously that's dangerous because you could end up going down a road of permissions for techniques that no one would want to see adopted here but i do think that the science is pretty clear the position of the FBI is pretty clear, even law enforcement, you know, if you generate leads that are less probable to match a perp, you're generating an enormous number of leads, all of which you either have to chase down as law enforcement, or you make decisions about which ones to pursue and which ones not to pursue. And I know during the debates around the regulatory regime, Um, There were concerns articulated by law enforcement that there could be liability if they failed to pursue all the leads that were generated. Um, So I do think, you know, even at the end of the day, law enforcement acknowledges that there are limits to this particular technique in terms of actually generating leads that will result in crime resolution and, you know, people being locked up. But again, I think... You know we're not at that point yet i certainly hope that the legislature will take this stevens decision as a wake-up call um, for them to actually engage in a fully informed discussion and debate that allows them to weigh and balance the competing interests here
0: well finally in this discussion do you feel like there is a meaningful difference between the familial searches that we're talking about and say partial match result from say a a routine search uh, of a dna database
1: yes i do actually And, and you know we've had this debate also over the years um a partial match is basically an unintentional potential for a match right you set stringency levels as you know the actor who is doing the dna profiling and the matching and there has been sort of an unintentional, you know, this is matching on 10 of the 13 alleles. Maybe there's something here we should look at. Whereas the familial DNA profiling is intentionally setting these parameters for potential matches and then intentionally going into the state DNA database, the local DNA databases um, to run the profiles to see how many potential hits are going to kick out. So it's a very intentional action as opposed to an unintentional act. When the partial matching technique was first being discussed, it was only in the context of sex crimes where you would have degraded samples from rape kits that had been lingering, completely untouched and deteriorating over the years because law enforcement did not in fact process rape kits. There's a lot of reporting on that. And so what was advanced was this partial unintentional matching technique actually was a way to sort of absolve law enforcement for not appropriately processing sex assault kits. And, you know, there was an awful lot of discussion around the fact that, you know, these kits needed to be processed because potentially you would be finding actors who had committed sexual assault. The stringency levels were set a lot higher, so the degree of probability of match was relatively higher, I think, than what you tend to find with um, familial search techniques. But again, you know, I think the Court of Appeals did not find um, that discussion necessarily persuasive, the differentiation between unintentional and intentional um, harvesting of profiles. But I do think as a matter of law, there is significance. And I think that that's a determination for the legislature to have made, not the courts, and certainly not DCJS.
0: Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Beth Rulis, an attorney with the New York Civil Liberties Union. Beth, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it.
1: Great. Thank you for covering this.